from KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. You've heard people say Portland's best days are behind it or that it's not the same city they grew up in. Crime, vandalism, homelessness and gun violence have a lot of residents angry and frustrated. Maybe you're one of them. But the man who's represented Portland in Congress since 1996 is still bullish on the city and optimistic things can and will get better. Congressman Earl Blumenauer represents the third district. If you live within the area shown on this map, which includes Gresham, Troutdale, and most of Portland east of the Willamette, you are in the third district. And Earl Blumenauer is your congressman. And he says he's working hard in D.C. to help bring improvements to the city and beyond. Here to tell us what he's working on and give us his insights into what's happening on Capitol Hill, we're pleased to welcome our guest, the dean of the Oregon delegation, Democratic Congressman Earl Blumenauer. Welcome back to Talk. Thanks, Laurel. It's been a while. It has been a while. But how does it feel to be the dean of the delegation now that the former dean, <laughs> Peter DeFazio, retired? Uh, it's uh, a little unusual. Peter is one of my best friends in Congress, and we worked together for a number of years. And uh, I still regard him as sort of the unofficial dean. I think a lot of people probably do. Well, it's nice to see you, the new dean, here on Straight Talk. Let's talk about Portland, because as I mentioned at the top of the show, you know a lot of people are frustrated with what they see on the streets. I'm sure you hear some of that from your constituents. You love Portland. You've lived here a long time. When you look around the city, what do you see? How would you describe the state of the city of Portland right well, it's, now? Well, it's very mixed. And there's no question that there's some serious problems. Part of our community is broken. Uh, I don't like what I see and how it feels. Uh, but Portland still has good wounds. If you go through the neighborhoods, as I do every week, you see people who take pride in their community, who haven't given up. They're fighting to move forward, to take advantage of opportunities, uh, and to make sure that we're not going to be defeated by these circumstances. The root of, of a lot of the problems we see uh, is mental and behavioral health issues, Absolutely. addiction, lack of access right. to treatment. And you convened a meeting of, of some 40 leaders recently. What are some of the things that you're talking about trying to do to try to address those concerns about a lack of services, a lack of access to treatment? Yeah. Well, part of the challenge is the voters have been very generous, as you know, with resources. Uh, we're probably having more opportunities to invest than we're going to have for years. But how we make that investment and a sense of urgency. Now, I make no secret of the fact that the job that the people in the county commission and the city have today is much more difficult than when I was there. Uh, but I, I am concerned that we seem to lack that sense of urgency to try and pull it together. We had, as you mentioned, uh, 40, over 40 people who make things happen in behavioral health. Uh, there's a consensus in terms of being able to move forward, uh, the need to move more quickly in terms of some of the housing. We've improved massive sums of money, and it's hard to get it out on the street. That's part of our challenge. Uh, with both the city and the county and the state. I will say how pleased I am with our new governor. Tina Kotek is really dialed down and she's been a very aggressive partner. She was at that meeting that I had. Uh, I think she's 
every week, uh, every other week or so, connecting. And talking to Mayor Wheeler and Jessica Vega-Peters and the Multnomah County Chair. And providing leadership in terms of state resources. We got some additional help out of the legislature. Um, it's, uh, but it's, it's going to be a, a hard road ahead. And it's everybody's job to be a part of the solution. Well, you mentioned all the, the buckets of money that voters have approved. And I think that's a lot of the frustration voters have because they feel like they put up the money and they don't see Absolutely. anything getting better. What do you say to them? Absolutely. Well, I share their frustration. Uh, part of it is the challenges today in terms of delivering services. We see it when we go out to eat in our restaurants. Um, many of them have had to reduce their hours uh, because they don't have staff. This has been a serious problem in terms of being able to have the people to take advantage of these positions. Uh, part of it is getting these things in the pipeline. One of the things I am very interested in doing is seeing if we can shorten some of the timetable in terms of making things happen. Uh, it is a challenge. Sometimes I think we trip over ourselves in process, and I think this is one of our greatest opportunities and, and difficulties, is being able to make sure we get the desired outcomes, but that we're able to shorten the amount of time that get caught up in terms of the bureaucratic process, and frankly, just getting people to be able to implement our plans. A lot of people blame D.A. Schmidt for what they see on the streets, his office and him and him personally for not being tough enough on prosecution. You recently met with D.A. Schmidt. What, what's your takeaway? Oh, I think that's decidedly unfair. I mean, he has, I, I have met with him frequently. He's ready to prosecute anybody that the police gives him in terms of being able to make a case. Um, sadly, uh, there seems to be some lag between what we see on the street and being able to have the arrest and moving forward. Uh, another challenge that we've got is the justice system requires that people that we arrest and prosecute have to have representation. And the de public defender system has been hopelessly broken. And so you have cases being dismissed because we can't provide them, them with their representation. Um, it's, it is maddening. Uh, there are situations in talking to the district attorney, he has some of these people under his jurisdiction, um, but he can't send them to jail because again, there aren't spaces available. So we've got to make sure that all of the pieces in this convoluted process work representation, jail space, enforcement. Uh, I think uh, he has done uh, a, a, a good job under difficult circumstances. Um, and I think it's uh, the more people understand the restraints he's got, I, I think they have maybe a little more sympathy. But I understand the frustration. I want people who break the law uh, locked up, put away. I want greater reactions uh, and not let it uh, drift away, but it's easier said than done. Those are tough, 
difficult jobs. If uh, for folks who are interested in more about the public defender problem, we've done a lot of investigative work with Kylie Boshi, yeah. so you can take a look at yeah. that on our YouTube channel. Let's talk about safety because we report a lot on deaths for bicycles and pedestrians out on some of our streets. And you've uh, secured a grant for PBOT of $20 million to address safety on one of the deadliest roads, 122nd yeah. Avenue. How is that going to help? Well, part of the problem is to be able to make these big, wide, uh, they're almost freeways, um, make them safer. It's not safe for people to cross. Uh, we need more signalization. We need to work to make sure that we, in some cases, narrow the road. Uh, they call it a road diet, but in terms of the configuration, so that it's safer. Uh, we've got additional resources that we're working on for 82nd Avenue. These are two of the worst streets in the entire region, and we're putting together partnerships to make a difference in terms of how they function, how they work, how they operate. You mentioned 82nd Avenue, and we're, we're taping this on Thursday afternoon, but on Friday, you are taking the U.S. Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, to tour 82nd Avenue. Tell us about that. Yes, well, 82nd Avenue, I, I view it 10 miles of opportunity. It's an old, outmoded state highway that doesn't really function as it was designed. Recently, we've been able to have a transfer of 82nd Avenue to the management of the city of Portland. We've got some money to invested in terms of signalization, in terms of crosswalk safety. Um, there's an opportunity for 82nd Avenue. We could put probably 10,000 housing units along those 10 miles of opportunities if we're able to improve the safety and be able to make the investments uh, in both the city and Clackamas County to take advantage of it. You've also announced an $800,000 grant for the Albina Vision Trust, and the aim of that is to reconnect yeah. communities on the east side yeah. and to help rebuild wealth of black residents who have been you know, just disenfranchised yes. from their homes over the last decades. How is that money going to help? Well, I love the project in terms of the Albina Vision where the communities come together and said, no, <laughs> we paid a horrible price for freeway construction and urban renewal without consideration for the people who live there. The Biden administration has engaged in a really exciting set of programs to be able to help communities heal. There are resources to bring uh, uh, some communities that are divided by highways, find ways to design and bring them together. Being able to deal with historic problems that uh, were visited upon the community. Uh, Albina Vision, I think, is an opportunity for us to reimagine what should happen there and to be able to work with the community who were really dramatically shortchanged. They had little or no choice. There was a thriving black community there with businesses and homes. Um, and the freeway expansion and urban renewal uh, really wiped that out in a way that wasn't sensitive at all. And you've probably heard that Phil Knight donated $400 million to that effort recently. I want to get just a few quick takes from you on the Supreme Court rulings recently. The Supreme Court ruled against affirmative action, effectively ending race-conscious admissions for colleges and universities across the country. What impact do you think that's going to have? Well, they're going to have to work harder to provide opportunities and diversity. Uh, I think this is an example of the Supreme Court 
taking a very narrow reading of the law and the opportunities that we've had to try and deal with problems. I think it's narrower than it should be. We're going to have to work harder to overcome it. And the student loan forgiveness program, the high court killed President Biden's effort to forgive loans up to $20,000. They said it wasn't explicitly approved by Congress, so it, it is, you know, we went beyond his presidential powers. The president is trying a plan B yep. that's probably going to take months. What do you want to see him do? Well, the, the burden of student debt is really tremendous on so many uh, young people and some who aren't so young, including people who are parents and grandparents. Uh, the student debt, uh, I think, again, the court was pretty narrow in terms of what they've done. Uh, I hope that the administration will continue, but I would hope that Congress would step up. But we have been stymied. Some of my Republican friends are not worried about this, and I think they should be. And one more ruling recently. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of a web designer, a Christian graphic artist in Colorado, who didn't want to do same-sex wedding websites. The court said the First Amendment's free speech protection shields some businesses from being required to provide services to same-sex couples. What impact do you think this ruling has on the LGBT plus community. Well, again, it's a signal uh, that people aren't being uh, engaged and respected. They didn't have to rule that narrowly. In fact, this wasn't even a case uh, where there was actually somebody who had been denied. This was theoretical. And it's an example of where the conservative majority of the court is reaching out trying to chart their own path, and I think it's unfortunate. Shifting gears, you are the founder and co-chair of the Bipartisan Congressional Cannabis Caucus. You've been a national leader on this issue for decades. In fact, Oregon is marking its 50th anniversary of the vote to decriminalize cannabis. It was the first state to do so in 1973. You were instrumental in that process, and you talked about that on the House floor recently, and you said it's time that the feds catch up with Oregon. Let's listen to what you had to say. We owe it to the generations of black Americans targeted by the failed war on drugs. We owe it to our veterans with their wounds seen and unseen. We owe it to thousands of workers and their employers who fail drug tests every day because they used state legal cannabis weeks before. We owe it to the large and growing cannabis industry whose employees are targets for violent robbery because we deny them bank accounts. We owe it to the American public who are not waiting for the federal government. What do you see, Congressman, as the next steps in cannabis reform? Well, the work that's continuing on the state level that has gotten us this far, the federal government, as I mentioned, has been sort of stuck in place. We've passed the banking bill seven times in the House and couldn't quite get it across the finish line in the Senate. Uh, there's work that continues on the state level. Ohio is going to move on full legalization with a vote uh, in the next election process. Um, I think we can get the banking legislation through. We have a, a U.S. Senate leadership now that has embraced it. Leader Schumer, um, our own uh, Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden have been part of this effort. Uh, I think we can finally get this um, banking bill through, which will show 
how broad the base of support is. I think it will pass overwhelmingly. Uh, but we have to continue making sure that the federal government is a full partner. Uh, we did get my research bill signed, the first adjustment to the Controlled Substance Act in uh, 50 years, the president signed my bill. Uh, we'll have a chance to actually have a good test for impairment. In my statement on the floor, I mentioned the fact that every day, tens of thousands of people fail pre-employment drug tests. Not because they're high, but because at some point in the last month or so, they use marijuana. If we had that same test for alcohol, we would, we would shut the place down. That's, that's nonsensical, it's unnecessary. I hope we can make that progress. Another big issue for you is the food and farm bill. This is something you and I have talked about here. Yes, you had a, a yes, bill in 2018. You have a new one that you've reintroduced, an updated version of that. Congress is set to reauthorize the massive farm bill this year. What changes do you want to see made? Well, we continue to pay too much to the wrong people to grow the wrong food the wrong way in the wrong places. And Oregon agriculture is shortchanged. The bill that I developed was a result of talking to men and women all over Oregon. What would a farm bill look like if it was for Oregon? There would be more support for fruits and vegetables, more support for research, more support for conservation. And I think we're getting to a point now where people understand the wisdom of that approach. And I'm optimistic that we're gonna make some progress. Well, one of the things that came up in the debt ceiling debate was expanding work requirements for SNAP recipients. Is that something you think is gonna come up again in debate on the farm bill? It, it is, they're trying to do that. I find it nonsensical that we are trying to make it harder for poor and low-income people to get access to badly needed nutrition. And yet, for the last 37 years, rich farmers have received a million dollars a year every year for 37 consecutive years without limits, time-wise, and the amount. That's ludicrous, uh, and I hope we can change that. Congressman, a lot more to talk about, but we have to take a break right now. When we come back, Congressman Blumenauer has been called the biggest bike dork in Congress. A compliment, why he thinks bikes can save the world and what he's working on to help make that happen. Welcome back to Stray Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. Welcome once again to my guest, Oregon 3rd District Congressman Earl Blumenauer. Thanks again for being here, Congressman. My pleasure. Well, let's talk about one of your favorite subjects, bikes. I know that you bicycle to work in Congress, that you don't even have a car in D.C. You founded the bipartisan Congressional Bike Caucus to build support for the bicycling community. I heard you have two bikes. You wear your bicycle pin, which, which you have on today. It's very nice, a pink bicycle pin, if you can see it there on camera. Eventually, you'll be able to see when we're on. There you go. There's a bicycle pin there. Um, do you have an e-bike yet? Not yet, but I'm going to. I uh, d was uh, in between some meetings uh, last year, um, um, my wife and I were in France. We were cycling in the countryside. And the second day, I was on an e-bike. And it was really remarkable. I've, I've done some test rides before, but just on a longer ride, it really adds a dimension. And it's also a serious part of transportation. An e-bike makes everybody into a bike commuter, if they want to be. 
and its uh, tremendous opportunities in terms of energy conservation and expanding the range of people who are involved. Well, e-bike use is on the rise in this country, but they're pretty expensive. You're working on legislation to try to promote uh, the use right. of e-bikes with tax incentives so right. that it will make it more accessible to people. Tell right. us about your legislation. Well, it would provide a tax credit for moderate income people for the purchase of an e-bike. But, you know, you consider how much people spend on their motor vehicles. I mean, we're talking about ten, twelve thousand dollars a year on average. Um, an e-bike is twenty-five hundred, thirty-five hundred. The operating costs are minimal. Uh, there's no parking problems. Um, it's a tremendous opportunity to uh, make a difference. We are strongly supportive of being able to expand uh, e-bike access, but for uh, bikes, uh, biking generally, we've got a very good bike share program here in Portland. Um, there's been a tremendous uptick in terms of the e-bike uh, e utilization for bike share. Um, you know, it's the most efficient form of urban transportation ever designed, ever. And when you take a trip on a bike, um, it's a different mindset. If there are two cyclists that are stopped for a traffic light, you know, there's, there's no sense of road rage. You know, there's easy camaraderie, conversation. It really is a breath of fresh air. Even sometimes we have, shall we say, uh, challenging weather here <laughs> yes. in the Northwest. Um, but it's, it, it truly has the opportunity to protect the land, protect air, promote health, and save money. Well, you have been so instrumental in the bicycling community in Portland and trying to make the city more livable and sustainable. You even have a bridge named after you, the Earl Blumenauer Pedestrian and Bicycle Bridge. It connects uh, East Portland um, over Interstate 84 uh, at Northeast uh, 7th Avenue. Um, how do you feel about having a bridge named after you? Well, it's a project I've been working on for a number of years because it ties together the, that central east side with the Lloyd District. Um, it makes a, a, a avoids uh, sort of a dangerous situation on Northeast uh, 13th um, near Benson High School. Um, I, I love the bridge, I love that it's there, and it's going to open up a whole range of uses in the near central east side. And at some point, you know, we're going to be completing this green loop. Yes, tell us more about the green loop, because this is the first major public infrastructure in that green loop, right? Well, the idea is to take the locations in the central city with the green loop and tie it together. There's been major investments that have been made already to try and make it uh, more user-friendly. Uh, the Better NATO program, uh, the, the signage uh, in downtown, the, the Ned Flanders Bridge. I mean, there's, there are many of these things here that are going to make it uh, much more uh, user-friendly uh, and open up th these uh, areas to uh, development and safe transportation. How long do you think till, till the Green Loop is complete? Is that you know a decades-long project? I, d I think not. It, uh, it's not 
there, there will be some required resources to be added. But when we're talking about bicycle infrastructure, we're not talking about billions of dollars in decades. Uh, we have the opportunity for bike lanes, bike bridges, bike uh, infrastructure to be accomplished in a, a matter of years, sometimes just months. Congressman, we have about 30 seconds left for a final message you'd like to share with our viewers and our listeners on our podcast. Well, I deeply appreciate what we're seeing here with people who care so much about the community and they're looking for ways to give back. That I find inspirational when I come home every week. I see more examples of that where we're in this together, we recognize it, and we're committed to progress. Well, thank you, Congressman Blumenauer, for everything that you're doing for the city of Portland and trying to make things better and everything that you're doing in Congress. Thanks for being here on Straight Talk. And thank you for watching and listening. As I mentioned, we have a podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Search for KGW Straight Talk. I hope you'll join us next week when we look at the impact of Portland's daytime camping ban that happens, it starts on Friday, July 7th. The, the effect it will have on local shelters, service providers, and the homeless community. We have a panel that will be discussing that. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk. Have a great week.